Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Midrash. This year, each week, we will hear a Dvar Torah on the Parsha from Rabbi David Kasher. Let's listen. Noah is a notoriously difficult character to pin down. Is he being presented as one of our heroes, to be emulated for his exceptional virtue, or as a tragic foil for the real heroes to come? Here is a man who was singled out by God for salvation. His unfathomable efforts before and during the flood managed to preserve and then restart humanity, and to save all animal species from extinction along the way. According to the Torah's narrative, we all owe our lives to Noah, from the families of Bnei Noach, the children of Noah, Nifredu Agoim Ba'aretz Achar Mabul, all the nations spread out onto the earth after the flood. Yet that very verse is the last we hear of Noah in the Torah. For all the magnitude of Noah's accomplishments, our story then just leaves him behind and moves swiftly on to Abraham, whose family we will be following for the rest of Genesis. Noah was even the first to receive a brit, a covenant from God. But he does not merit the covenant that will be the Torah's primary focus starting in next week's Parsha. Something is missing in Noah, something underrealized. Rashi is keenly aware of this ambiguity in Noah's status. When the first verse of the Parsha tells us that Noah was a pure and righteous man in his generation, Rashi wonders, why the extra clause, in his generation? He cites a Talmudic debate. Yeshmi Rabotenu, some of our rabbis, interpret this as praise, as if to say, all the more so, if he had been in our generation full of righteous people, he would have been even more righteous. But some interpret it as a critique, as if to say, only with respect to his generation was he righteous. But if he had been in the generation of Abraham, lo haya nechshav leklum, he would not have been considered anything at all. We can find these doubts about Noah's legacy seeded in the language of the Torah itself. In the Torah storytelling, a name is more than just an identifying word. It's a way of suggesting some essential quality manifested in a character, one that can help us understand their behavior and even anticipate their destiny. In Noah's case, however, his naming prompts exactly the sort of uncertainty around his character that we have so far been contemplating. He is first named at the end of last week's Parsha. Vayichi Lemech Shtaim Ushmonim Shana, when Lemech had lived 180 years, he begat a son. And he named him Noah, or Noach, saying, This one will provide us relief, Yenachamenu, from our work and from the pain of our hands, out of the very soil which the Eternal cursed. The reference here is to the curse of the ground that God issued after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, God says. Noah, his father hopes, will be a harbinger of relief, nechama, from the toil and suffering that human beings have endured ever since as they tried to eke their sustenance out from the ground. But there's a problem with this derivation. Although the name Noach sounds similar to the word for relief, Yenachem, they do not share a Hebrew root. 
Noach is derived from the Hebrew root nun vav chet, meaning rest or ease or pleasantness, menucha, while yenachamenu derives from the root nun chet mem, meaning comfort, relief, or soothing, nechama. These qualities, like their roots, may appear similar, but they are distinct in an important way. The first describes an unchanging state of calm, the character of a thing at rest and tranquility. The second describes a change in state, a movement from discomfort to comfort, from pain to relief. In fact, nun chet mem can also mean reconsider, as in to reconsider punishment and provide relief. Noah's father Lemech has either misunderstood him or misnamed him. Noah is, so to speak, missing a mem. Rashi, ever the sensitive reader, picks up on this as well. Zeyinachamenu, this one will provide us with relief. Ein tamalashon nofel alashem, the meaning of this language does not match the name. Menachem. Instead, you would have to call him Menachem. Menachem is, in fact, one of the names the Talmud attributes to the coming Messiah, the one whose role is to deliver us from a state of suffering. Noach, meanwhile, does not provide relief. He is already in a state of calm, perhaps even as the world around him suffers. Umberto Casuto the 20th century Italian biblical scholar, with an unusually sharp appreciation for the Torah's literary sophistication, also notices that the reason given does not correspond to the root of Noah's name. And he adds, L'shem Noach, Romeza katu v'charkach kamapamim b'mishake milim. The verses afterward continue to play word games that hint at Noah's name. Noah, or Noach, found favor, or chen, in God's eyes. The ark rested. Tanach. A resting place, manoach, for the dove's feet. The Eternal smelled a pleasing scent, reach nichoach. The first of these word game examples offers us yet another near-miss attribution to the meaning of Noah's name. God finds chen, grace or favor, in him, some extraordinary quality that catches attention from the heavens and establishes a particular bond. But in fact, here on earth, he is noach, made up of the same two letters, chet and nun, but inverted, nun chet, as if he had become just the inverse of what God had seen in him. But the last three examples Kasuto highlights all play off the root from which Noah's name is actually formed, the one that means rest or pleasantness. The ark rested. The dove sought a resting place. The scent of Noah's offering was pleasing. Indeed, as we move forward into the flood, we start to see Noah's name and his easy, tranquil essence reflected everywhere around him. What does all this wordplay with Noah's name mean? All three of the Torah's attempts to ascribe meaning to Noah's name, comfort, nechama, grace, chen, and rest, menucha, all represent potentials, the men he could have been, 
These were qualities that existed in him as latent possibilities, up to him to realize or not. All human hopes were upon him to be a comforter. Could he have been Menachem, the Redeemer? God looked down and saw someone imbued with a special quality of grace, someone with whom a unique bond could have been formed. Should he have been called Hanan, the favored one? But ultimately he became Noach, the man of Manucha, the one calm presence standing before a coming storm. Now, Manucha is not a bad thing. It's a quality we celebrate in this tradition, especially on Shabbat. And Manucha may be just the thing one needs in a time of crisis, a calm and steady hand. Noah was, in other words, just the man for this job, a righteous man in his generation. But Manucha is not the virtue that will animate the rest of the Torah. Our story will need someone restless, a wanderer, someone like Abraham who actively calls upon that quality that God saw in Noah. If I found favor in your eyes, Abraham says, and then uses his special connection to demand God not kill the righteous among the wicked. Eventually, this story will need an agitator who will bring relief to human suffering. Someone like Moses, who will again and again defend his people from punishment and entreat God to shuv mecharon apecha vehinachem, relent from your fury and reconsider. This is the nature of the covenant that we will be concerned with from here on out. It is an anxious covenant, one deeply concerned with the suffering of the world. And it is an intimate covenant, one that presumes such a close relationship with God that one can call upon God's favor and use it to demand relief from that suffering. Noah's covenant, in contrast, is not a covenant of intimacy, a special promise made to him alone. It is a general agreement made with him and all living creatures for all generations to come. Nor is Noah's a covenant of change, but a commitment to the status quo. I will establish my covenant with you all. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Noah never even tries to persuade God to relent from destroying people. But after the destruction, he does secure a truce, a willingness to keep things as they were. Not relief, but rest. Noah, then, functions in this story like one other variation on the root of his name, one drawn from the lexicon of Torah trope. He is an etnachta, a pause. He's the holding place before the real action begins. Noah has an important function to serve, to maintain one space of tranquility while everything around him is destroyed and prepared for a restart. That is no small task, and he accomplishes it. But when the task is over, the pause comes to an end, and Noah, like the reach nichoach, that pleasing scent, fades away like a vapor. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you know that I'm teaching an online Parsha class every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, in partnership with Ikar. 
Uh, we'll take a deeper dive into some aspect of the material we covered in this Devar Torah. So if you love these podcasts, it's a great way to keep the conversation going. Sign up for free at hadar.org forward slash west. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. Thank you.